Welcome to the Homeland Heroes Salute, a podcast dedicated to sharing stories to heal and honor our heroes. We are your hosts, Bill Taub and Dave Tilly. Hi, and welcome back to Homeland Heroes Salute podcast. My name is Phil Taub, and along with Dave Tilly, we're very happy this evening to be hosting a friend of ours, Hillary Sega, who uh, David and I both know. I first got to know Hillary uh, from really just seeing her as, as a volunteer at so many local, you know, veteran events. Uh, but I've actually never heard, uh, Hillary, you've never told me your story of your time in service. And so very looking, looking forward to, to diving in on that. And maybe that's just a great place to start, Hillary, is, you know, tell us a little bit about what you were thinking about and why you joined the service in the first, in the first place. Well, Phil, thank you for having me today. Uh, I actually... I'm an Air Force veteran, you know that part of it. But I went into the service in 1979. And the reason that I went in was like so many people did back then, I was kind of at loose ends when I graduated from high school. In my case, it was because my parents had moved from New Hampshire to California and they were moving back from California back to New Hampshire. And I, I was just not really ready to go away to college. Um, so I said, well, I'll just go away in the military and go to foreign countries and stuff like that, which made more sense to me for some reason, but it worked out great. So I went in in October of 79, I joined to be a journalist. My, um, my recruiter told me that I should go in open under an open category. And this is a, this is a good warning to anybody going in, never go in under an open category. But I went in under an open category to be a journalist and uh, ended up as a civil engineering technician. So kind of a little switcheroo there, but it ended up being great. And it really, it really, um, it it went off my aptitude. So it followed the whole math kind of geek thing that I've got going. And uh, I did all of my training down in Texas, which was a lot of fun. I was stationed up near, uh, Lake Superior in Duluth, Minnesota at Patrick Air Force Base was my first really lengthy duty station. And that was wonderful. I was there for the first shuttle launch and I did volunteer to drive VIPs to the shuttle launch because I got a great seat at the shuttle launch and got to meet some pretty cool people. Um, Then I spent some time over in Korea and in the South in Arkansas and Mississippi before I decided after eight years, it was time to come home. Um, It was actually really gratifying. I did a lot of very cool things back when I went in. I was the only female for quite a while in the civil engineering squadron at Patrick. And then a uh, woman who ended up being a lifetime friend of mine joined up. She was a diesel mechanic. And we were both on something that they call a triple R team, which is rapid runway repair. And what they did was they would go up to Eglin, which was close to Patrick, both in Florida, and they strafed the runway. They actually bombed the runway, an old runway, and we had to fix it. And we competed with other civil engineering times to fix these runways. And we had such a great time and we always beat everybody. And we were the only team that had two women on it. So it was pretty cool. 
So, you know, not, not things civilians do. Like I can't imagine a bunch yeah. of uh, Audley's crew going down and blowing up the runway in Manchester to see if they could fix it. <laughs> hey, Hillary, this is uh, Dave Tilly. And I've got a question. So when, when you first entered though, and, and basically you selected to leave it kind of open. And, and when you mentioned that maybe um, that wasn't the right decision, was that because that left it up to the military to, to kind of decide where to direct you instead of you? Yes, it did. It left it entirely up to them. And, and they based it upon some of the uh, aptitude testing that they did for you and then directed you in this direction that ended up working. Nope. They did. And I give them credit for that because even though I thought I really did want to be a writer and a journalist, and I still write a lot, I do have a very strong, I mean, I'm a computer, a computer engineer by trade now. And so obviously that mathematical aptitude was what they noticed and why they put me where I was. That's, that's amazing. And then the, um, tell me too about your, I mean, emotions and feelings of being at the first shuttle launch and, it was, that, uh, and that it was your Air Force crew that, that took you to that. It was so crazy. Um, they, so they were doing the shuttle. It was really cool. I mean, we'd seen so many launches from Cape Canaveral anyway, because Patrick was a support base for Cape Canaveral as well as, uh, you know, the A-10 base. But we'd see the rockets go up. Just our base housing was on the ocean. Yeah, I'm, I sort of feel a little bit like Private Benjamin with the mansion and the yacht because I lived on the ocean and, you know, drove in limos with Ted Kennedy. But it was, it was there was other stuff, too. I mean, obviously. <laughs> but, um, yeah, we went up there. And when that, when that thing took off, Dave, I got to tell you, the uh, just it was like an earthquake. It was like an earthquake, and then it went up, and it was just, I mean, the butterflies that come with something like that, because you never know what's going to happen. And um, But everything, the whole time that I was there went really well. Um, I transferred over to Korea, and the shuttle launch that happened right after I transferred, or, or the first launch that went up after I transferred, was Challenger. And when we were in Korea, we were downtown and we heard, of course, back then in the 80s, we didn't have our cell phones and internet and all of this satellite stuff going on. So we actually heard that it blew up on the ground and we got a red alert to get back to base immediately. Everybody was called back to base. Um, nobody knew what happened. And I had a lot of friends that worked in the control center there so we heard that it had blown up and pretty much taken the whole base out and it was just um it was pretty it was pretty frightening and, and devastating so as sad as it was there was a sense of relief when we found out what really happened we lost seven lives and there's there's nothing that should be that was good about that but the tragedy wasn't compounded mm -hmm. And it was, uh, but yeah, I, I had some interesting history with, with strange, strange stuff that like when I was in basic training, the Iranian hostages got taken. And uh, 
I don't know, just kind of like weird things like that, where all of a sudden the whole, we're sitting home glued to the TV mm -hmm. as civilians saying, oh my gosh, and you don't know what's going on in the base. I mean, lights are going off, people are getting called in and it's, it's pretty intense whenever everything happens. And the gravity of such international situations like the Iran, you know, hostage crisis is even more so when you're in service because you get those briefings that now you're potentially on alert. And, it and that's the, mm -hmm. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. I mean, it. I uh, I can't imagine with everything that's been going on lately overseas and things what some of our active duty people or what are they what they have um when you first get out of the service you're on an inactive reserve status where you can be called back at any time if you're needed and so i feel like some of those people must get the shivers up their spine when they see something happen that i would get just that kind of unknowing and mm -hmm. what's going on. And Hillary, right, right before you were explaining this part, you sort of glossed over, I heard you say Ted Kennedy. So tell us that story. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, so I used to volunteer. I mean, they always tell you not to volunteer for stuff. I used to volunteer every time there was a shuttle launch to drive the staff car because I could get great seats. And, you know, for the most part, I got a bunch of generals and stuff in there. But I had, um, I had a couple of generals and I had Ted Kennedy in my staff car going up to see a launch. And I must have been 21 or 22. And I, you know, this was, he's a big figure. I mean, everybody knew who the Kennedys were. And, what, and it was just kind of, uh, kind of crazy that, uh, that I got to drive them and, and they were great. I mean, he was so nice. And the general that was with him, they were probably some of the nicest people that I ever drove. Because mm -hmm. a lot of times I'd drive out to the staff car and then I'd drive them out to the viewing area and I'd have to pull back and I could watch from the parking lot. But these guys invited me to the bleachers with them and everything. And it was just, it was, it was kind of uh, surreal to be sitting there with this, this, being legendary, for want of a better word, notorious in some eyes and a hero in other eyes, but it was um, it was just really interesting to have something like that happen. And I was used to the generals, the four stars, and and things like that, and other senators. But I was twenty one or twenty two, so who did I know from senators? So that was a big deal. I got home and. <laughs> <laughs> I will, I will say what my father said, because, and somebody else said this today. I told my, called my dad and mom and told them what happened, and my dad said it was good you were driving. <laughs> <laughs> so that's pretty tasteless. You can cut that yeah. out if you want to. I apologize. <laughs> but I will mention that somebody else here may have said that to me when I told that story before. So, no, so, so Hillary, then... Um, so how many years were you then in the service? And this was all part of a very early part of your uh, service to experience all of this, you it know, was. so early in your time. Yeah, I was in for eight years total. And I did the first, um, the first four of it between spending a year in Duluth and three, almost four years in Patrick. 
Then I went to Korea and um, in Korea, it was great. I, I actually had the option to live off base. So I chose to get an apartment and live downtown and live in the, in the community and in the culture there. It was really wonderful. Um, I also really, uh, really got to up, kind of up my skill set because we did a lot of joint exercises with South Korea while we were over there. And we got short staffed at one point. Now the, uh, the military has two deployable engineering teams. They have one called Prime Beef, which they'll go do tent cities and things like that. And then they have a combat ready one called Red Horse. And back then I actually got to sub in on a Red Horse team because they didn't have enough men to do it, even though women technically weren't allowed in combat. So they subbed me in knowing it was an exercise, but that was very cool because I was deployed on Red Horse orders. So I kind of was the first woman ever to do a Red Horse team, although not really in combat. So <laughs> it's a fine line, but it was kind of kind of interesting to be part of that and to um, get out there and deal with all those people that weren't used to having a female around. Yeah, so that's awesome. So talk more about that a little bit, about being in that setting where the guys aren't used to having woman around right and there's all this tension about some guys feel like it's it's good you know that the women are serving in those roles and others you know from what i you know i've talked to some of the guys just sort of feel like that's not the right thing to do right and there you are in the pulpit so what i found with a lot of the men that i served with was most of the men that i served with like i really felt were gentlemen and they were very um chivalrous and that caused the biggest problem because if I was trying to haul around something that was really heavy or I was trying to do something, their natural instinct would be to drop what they were doing and try and help me, which is great when you're hauling groceries, but not so great when you all have to pull your own packs. And I think that one of the earliest things I remember was one of the sergeants telling me that the thing he hated the most about the thought of having women in combat is that he would lose half his guys because they would jump out in front of the women and take a bullet for them. And it says a lot about their honor and about just the, just how, how, difficult of a transition it was for a lot of these people. I don't think it was anything derogatory that I witnessed anyway, and I'm sure there was, but what I witnessed was nothing derogatory. It wasn't like, oh, she can't do that, or she can't do that, or or this or that. It was more of a, just this inbred or ingrown um, thing that they had been brought up, that people were brought up in that era to be like that. And so, having to pull my own weight and prove that I could do it and that I didn't need help without being rude was, that was hard. My mom was always very, you know, we're, we're all an old DAR family. So my mom was all always very ladylike and taught me to be a lady. So to tell somebody, you know, no, I can handle this when they're really trying to help me and try and explain it. And then that was the hardest part was, because they were kind, they mm -hmm. weren't. Not, I'm not saying I never went through anything that was that was uh, was uh, was bad with 
other men in the service, but with my guys, no. My guys knew me and they were awesome. Well, th that thank you for sharing that. That re that really is. I mean, uh, it's a hell of a thing. I mean, I I always figured you were a pioneer, you know, but I really didn't really understand the extent of that. So, you know, thank you for sharing that. And and so the Air Force has kind of become like a family affair for you guys now, right? Right now, yeah. My dad was Navy, so but my daughter was my daughter's father. My first husband was Air Force. My daughter went in the Air Force. She's out now. My son is a major in the Air Force. He's in the Reserve now, and uh, he outranks me. Thinks I should salute him when he comes to visit. Not happening. Right. <laughs> Not so happening. What, so what? What? What do you think they saw right in you and your experience? Right that that, you know, got them motivated to follow in your footsteps? Well, I think that a lot of it um, is that there's a camaraderie there that you just don't get in civilian life. When you meet another veteran, first of all, when you get out of the service, it's very, very hard to acclimate. And you don't, even if you go home to where all your high school friends are, they're all different. Everything's different. Nothing is it's just not as easy to form these relationships. And so, you know, when you're in the service, you have like new best friends call me every five minutes. The minute you transfer someplace, it's like they just assign themselves to you. And so making friends and building relationships and building lasting relationships, it just seems to be easier because you have this common goal. And when you get out, I think that um, you really find yourself as a service person, just gravitating toward those people, whether it's, um, I mean, I know that for me, I, I tend to do that and I'm watching my son and I'm watching my daughter and they're seeing the relationships that I have. And I think that there was something, especially probably, I mean, in both of them, a lot of it was pay for school, but the friends that they've made and the, the relationships they've built, the professional contacts that they have. And yeah, it's just, it's, it's something that really defines you. It, it, and I think it, I think that, um, you know, both of them have fathers who are military as well. So I think that it's just kind of in the blood a little bit too. I mean, it's, one of the, one of I got to tell you guys one of my favorite things about the contacts about meeting people and and automatically having something right there in common with them I mean Dave we had that right. you and I have had that you know and then I find the people who are just like so interested in helping the military and I kind of wonder sometimes where where that comes from and then I don't even want to know and I'm just grateful for it like like Phil like you like Jack. Like, um, you know, like Jack Heath, like, like Jay Lucas. And so there are all these people around and through all of this, I have this great network of contacts. So I know I'm kind of all over the place, but I'm thinking about like really cool things that have happened. Like if I have somebody that calls me up and says, Hey, you know, I really need to get my dad into the veterans home, or I really need to do this, or I really need to do this. I know who to call. 
if I have a friend in my veterans group, like I was telling you this today, David, um, one of my friends in my female veterans group online is friends with the wife of one of the Marines who lost her husband in Afghanistan. And so we immediately sent her out the information for children of fallen patriots so that she has that. And I just, maybe I'm not the one that created anything, but I am like this repository of all of this information because of all of the skills I learned making these immediate contacts in the military. And to me, that's just an invaluable. And I love that. I love, I love that part of me. <laughs> so. Well, uh, I know Hillary and I, I can, you know, Phil would attest to this too, because both of our knowing Hillary for our, our guests listening uh, was through all of your volunteerism and commitment to helping veterans since your military service. For so, for Phil and I, this is uh, wonderful for us to hear your story of your time prior to service and your eight distinguished years in the service because. Um, you know, I'll just speak a little to uh, talking more about all the great work you've done after the service is that, uh, you know, if, if there's help that needs to be done to help a veteran and particularly in the Lakes region, I reach out to Hillary Seeger, who's involved in uh, not only local VFW and Legion causes, but helping veterans count or swim with a mission or children of fallen patriots or the DAV, Disabled American Veterans. And, uh, and you know, if you could talk a little more to, uh, you know, certainly your service in that um, network of camaraderie uh, spurred your wanting to continue to serve. It's, it's pretty amazing. And New Hampshire is a really fertile ground for it. There are a lot, we have a, we have a pretty high percentage of veterans here. So I, I guess, it, I guess the best, the best way to put it is um, Swim with a Mission did a, their big event down at, I can't remember the name of the field, but they did it at the baseball field in Manchester. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. The, the Delta Dental. Delta Dental Field. Dental. Thank you. Mm -hmm. So my husband and I went down there and we got invited to, I don't know, most of the suites. We knew people in most of the suites. So that was kind of cool. We were going to the VIP reception, but that's and everything. All of that was very cool. But the coolest part of it was we walked in to this place and there were all these booths set up like a trade show of all of these veteran service organizations, just this, this huge trade show of all of them. And I knew people at 90% of those booths. And it was just like walking up through a receiving line of all these amazing, amazing, dedicated people. And so to uh, maybe... I, I just don't even know how to put it. It was, uh, I mean, I have goosebumps thinking about it right now. I mean, we ran into people we didn't even know were going to be there. And it was, it was unbelievable. And 
to realize that I have in my back pocket business cards and personal contact information for people like that, that can really help so many people that need it and have. It's just, um, I, I mean, I'm truly blessed. I'm just so blessed to have that, that and to have people who put these things together and who do, who, who are able to um, help fund them and raise funds for them and just to bring us all together so that we can do things like this. And then we can really reach out to folks that need help. I mean, did you see, wow, I mean, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm like all over the place with it, I know. But I think about just on Facebook, Matt Mayberry jumping in there, trying to help get somebody to help move a guy down one floor and he gets all of this. Um, people that just, people um, after Afghanistan happened, I talked to Tara Mahoney from EIP. Um, and, uh, you know, we were just talking about making sure we kept the lines open if anybody needed to call and needed to talk to anybody. And it's, um, it, gives, it gives you a purpose. Because when you're in the military, you have a purpose. Um, and it's really important to keep that going, coming out. And, and so, Hillary, that's, that's, there's a couple of questions I just wanted to ask you just in the segue. So I just want to go back to your kids for a second and their experience in the Air Force versus your experience in the Air Force. Do you see any differences? Is the Air Force the same or different, you know, than the Air Force when you served? Well, it's a lot different, I think. Um, my daughter was, of course, I served mostly during peacetime, so that's going to that's gonna make it hugely different. Uh, my daughter was a C-5 crew chief. She flew back and forth a lot, and um, my daughter was in during the don't ask, don't tell era, and she's, she's gay. So I think it was hard on her. Um, I think it was harder on her during that don't ask, don't tell era to be herself and to just, I don't know, and then to, to deal with what she was dealing with personally, then maybe going back to when I was in, and I'll tell you straight up that I will say 75% of the women I served with were probably gay as well but nobody cared back then. Then they get into this whole don't ask, don't tell, and people are making a big deal out of it. So I think that was tough on her. Um, but she had a very different experience and she was a flight crew, which was different. Uh, my son's an officer. That's a whole different ball game. Right. Um, he is an electrical engineer and, uh, you know, I go in the base with him and I, I see people, and I don't, I think it's very different. Some people are saying it's gotten more lax. I don't see that as much. Um, I mean, I think a lot of it is like women can wear their hair and braids down their back instead of trying to stuff it up under their hat now and tattoos are, are allowed and nobody cares if you're gay, you can get married and live in base housing. But I think that that's just the way of the world. I don't think that that's lax. I just think it's things that are changing and the discipline's still there. So certainly it's different, just like, you know, your life is different than your dad's life. But right. yeah, but it's just, that's how, that's how uh, 
things just progress. Um, the biggest threat that our military is facing is that there just aren't people, I mean, less than 1% even try to serve. And I don't think that, I think we're under 10% that would even qualify. Well, that, that's, that's a good point. Um, Hillary, I, I know, uh, right now, over 70% of our kids in high school, unfortunately, um, wouldn't qualify for serving in the military, uh, due to a variety of reasons of, uh, whether it's background checks or, um, not being able to pass physical fitness or test scoring. Yeah. Uh, and, and then with, uh, you know, cuts and how we've retransformed the military, there's just a significantly smaller percentage of folks um, serving. And I appreciate you mentioning too some of the points of, um, you know, different aspects of serving. Uh, we're not that far from age, but I entered the military at a later part of my life uh after college and it was actually right in the middle of the don't ask don't tell you know i entered in 1992 myself so the service was just going through that and and you know i would uh, see or, or feel you know what service members were going through through that you know time frame um so just from, from my end, I appreciate your um, thoughtfulness on, on bringing up those different points just on what different folks have gone through. Um, well, all committed very much to service and the importance of service. It's, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. I just... Oh, go ahead. oh, no, I just appreciate uh, all of your points. You brought up a lot of, you know, different things, uh, a, a lot of very important points, and just appreciate that. Well, I, I mean, I remember um, I played on the, uh, I played on the systems command softball team, and my roommate was a lesbian and she asked me out on a date and I said, no, I'm straight. And we stayed great friends forever. And that was the end of it. And somebody said to me, didn't it bother you? I'm like, no, I just told her no. I mean, I sleep in tents with guys. I sleep. <laughs> She's not a guy. She's fine. We're good. Everything's good. And um, I also think that women weren't as judgmental about that as men may have been. Because, you know, men get this whole macho thing going on every once in a while. And uh, I'm not saying women don't do that. I know I'm probably being. But I, I think women were a little bit more accepting of their uh, of their service sisters, you know, having a different having a different slant on things. But uh, but, uh, you know, now I, I don't see any problems really now with people. Um, I think we're, we're integrated pretty well. And that's a good thing, because if these people, if anybody, anybody, I don't care if you're black, white, green, purple, 
um, you, or you're, you know, you like to spin from the ceiling fan, if you're willing to serve and you're physically fit and mentally fit to do so, we should be grateful for that. Yeah, and a team member towards the common cause, you know, of uh, defending our country <laughs> and our liberties. And, but, um, and, and a lot of, uh, you're, you're bringing up a lot of points that are, uh, you know, good uh, conversations around a topic or, or topics of how the military, you know, has uh, transformed throughout the years with regard to uh, uh, gender, uh, race issues, um, whether it's, uh, you know, issues of sexual preference or what have you. I think one of the things that I would like to see them ease up on right now are some of the some of the restrictions that they have on on certain medical conditions. So if you think about back when women first started going in and when, you know, Navy guys especially hated women in the service because the women all got the they didn't go on the ships, so they got all of the, the uh, port duty, and that took away from the guy's ability to do it. But there's a lot of administrative jobs in the military that people are doing right now. Well, maybe if somebody who has, I don't know, who's like type 1 diabetes and they want to go into the military, but they can't because it's, you know, they're, they're medically, you know, medically dependent on the insulin, well, there's no reason why they can't go through basic and be a payroll clerk as long as they're a healthy diabetic or somebody with ADHD that requires medication for that. These are people that are perfectly fit and able to do this. Now, maybe they're not people that could go to combat or could be pilots, but they could certainly do um, the, the stateside support roles. And I think that we need to take a look at maybe being a little less stringent I would much rather have an ADHD person back here doing that um, than having, you know, an, an empty slot. And I think we need to kind of look at that and look at look at uh, maybe a broader scope of allowing people to serve. Mm -hmm. And what one contributes? Absolutely, absolutely. So I mean, it's just it's just food for thought. Mm -hmm. So that's, uh, that's just, you know, it's just, it's food for thought right now. So. Yeah. Great point, Sorry, I, I want to go back to soon. So just give us the, you know, going back into your life, tell us a little bit how you got from, you know, you left service and, and tired, you know, and I know you've been on this journey to, to where you are now, where, you know, you feel, I feel to me like you're the heart and soul some days, uh, you know, veteran service community. Well, I, um, when I got out of the service, I kind of bummed around in Meredith for a while, bartended, had some fun. Uh, but then I, uh, I got into, back into the engineering disciplines and into computers and had a pretty great career in in uh, software and network management, sales, going through things like Intuit and Novell, traveled all over the world doing that. So that was a lot of fun. So I kind of had a second 
little military travel experience, if you will. Um, but we ended up moving back to New Hampshire and I kind of semi-retired. And then, um, you know, that just really wasn't working out for me. I did like, I was, I was doing so much more stuff retired than I was working and spending so much time out, um, that I, I did end up going back to work, um, in aerospace. I got laid off from there. This is actually really funny. I got laid off from the aerospace during COVID and um, then volunteered at the company that I'm with now to do some computer programming and data entry um, through volunteernh.org. And I ended up getting hired full time and it's a wonderful job. But the reason that I got, I, I ended up volunteering was because I had been working with unemployment um, and I was trained, I was like, I had gotten so good at the unemployment system before I got laid off because we anticipated all this. So I was over working at the VFW, volunteering, not really working, helping people file for unemployment. When they laid me off, I actually stayed at the office when I got laid off and filed for unemployment and helped four other people file for it. Then I called down to the governor's office and said, hey, I'm going to be on unemployment. Can I come answer the phones there? And they said, well, we activated the National Guard going here. And so it was kind of funny. But yeah, I had, a, I had a really great career. And then I just kind of got, I don't want to say sucked because that means like it was unwilling, but I, I got drawn back into, uh, into the veterans community, especially up here. A lot of it was through just the people I met. Um, people like Gary Lambert, uh, Mm -hmm. He was running for Congress and Joe Kenny. I've served on panels with them. I think I uploaded a picture. I served on a panel at a New England college thing with, with them. And just the great people in the veterans community in New Hampshire just made me really want to be part of it. So I did. <laughs> and they were in so many different organizations that I just couldn't settle on one. So I ended up knowing all of them. And you, and you keep on diving in with both feet. <laughs> it, it's so awesome, though. I mean, it's like, how cool is it for, I mean, you know it, Dave, and you feel too, because you're the same. To know that somewhere, right before you get a phone call, somebody's saying, oh, well, this is happening. I have no idea who to turn to. And somebody's just looking at them saying, oh, call Dave Tilly or call, call Phil or call Hillary. I mean, that's... That's like the biggest, the biggest compliment anybody can give you. And, and I say it about you guys all the time because I know like the Boulder Point and the Harbor Home stuff and, and the things that we, we're doing there, um, the, the swim with the mission and the things that go on with there. Phil, you got me in, in the EIP, which has been so helpful to me. Um, so we are the blessed ones that we're on people's list to call that's awesome yeah i mean it is awesome and it takes everybody right to really make a difference right in our community so hillary let's talk a little bit about the veteran community i mean as you say i, I know you know a lot of folks in there and and you're seeing a lot of veterans that need help but give us a sense of i mean where do you think the needs are in new hampshire for veterans what are veterans struggling with and what what needs are we not meeting, do you think? 
Well, across the board, um, with the younger veterans, there's a lot of PTS and a lot of physical disability. And I and the younger veterans tend to not join the service organizations and maybe not reach out until it's too late or they have somebody to reach out for them. I worry they are my biggest concern because I worry that we're not reaching them. And I really would like to see, um, I would really like to see or brainstorm or, or just figure out a way to bring them into the fold and not let them just come home and not have that soft landing that we have with the legions and the VFWs who are frankly all people at least my age. Yeah. So, so why, why do you think it is that the younger generation is not going to the VFW halls and the American legions? And Well, finding- one of the things that I think is a real problem at some of these halls, even when they have, you know, they have their canteens and their bars and that's great, but their membership is so wide open. And I'm not saying that it shouldn't be, but it's so wide open. Like all I need to join the VFW as an auxiliary member is my grandfather was in. So you end up going into the VFW and it's a bunch of civilians who have familial ties, but aren't necessarily veterans. And so if I go into, I don't know, I don't want to say a town or a city, but if I go into this certain place, there aren't a lot of veterans there. It's mostly civilians. It's mostly people who have never served and mostly people who were born after their grandparents served. So it's not as um, it's not as welcoming. I would really like to see us, you know, uh, the Legion or somebody, or maybe if it's a whole new thing, just set up a couple of maybe social clubs that's that are just for veterans. Like you can't join unless you serve, and you can't uh, you can't come in unless you're a member, and you can bring a guest, obviously, but. You're not walking in there and seeing, you know, 10 ladies my age sitting there drinking White Claws. You know, you're... you're... Hillary, it's interesting you brought that up because I know uh, Phil hosted an event with Swim with a Mission at the Courier, and they actually um, had one of their guests was a startup that was a social networking group for, uh, you know, vets to vets kind of along that line. And it's um, interesting you brought that up. Uh, you know, I wonder if a couple things, you know, the older generations were also active duty and more or maybe around a base setting. Your Vietnam, Korea, World War II generations and your current generations, a lot more of those that are activated are guard and reserve, so they're not... Uh, you know, around a base community as well, much just in the camaraderie, but also I've seen in, I'm, I'm just wondering in other organizations that maybe it's a demographic thing that uh, younger folks aren't as involved in the rotary or becoming a volunteer fire person or, you know, in the Kiwanis or Lions Club that maybe, maybe it's just a, uh, demographic thing where younger folks uh, aren't as engaged in traditional 
organizations and how how do we connect? Yeah, it's definitely a tough one. I, I will tell you that's good to hear that somebody's doing that. And I will tell you of all of the organizations that I've seen out there right now, the one that I have personally seen that's doing the best job of connecting with the younger vets is Hidden Battles. Mm -hmm. Yes, love those guys. Absolutely love those. And I agree, they're doing a great job. They really are. I mean, they're they're hitting like the karaoke things and the cornhole tournaments and just uh, it's not that physical setting where you can always go, but they really do bring people together, not just to do the activity, but to be part of the group. And uh, yeah, they're, they're amazing. Yeah. So, we have yeah, so much energy, right, and excitement, and, and a young organization too, right? So ob obviously they've got something there. I gotta tell you what they're doing. This is this is really great, and this is what I love—the crossover stuff between the organizations. So of course I met the Hidden Battles folks through Swim with a Mission, and this weekend we're doing a a bingo tournament and I'm making air quotes because it's not a money bingo tournament. It's just kind of a fun thing up at Boulder point. And Leslie and Scott from hidden battles are putting together a really nice gift basket of all their swag to use as one of the prizes there. And I just love that crossover thing. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. That's very cool. No, it absolutely is. I, I, I'm going to take credit for we inspired them to do a rock around uh, Newfound Lake. You know, they figured they probably couldn't get enough people to swim across Newfound Lake, but they definitely could walk around Newfound Lake. And that's they've done that event two years now in a row. It's like 18 or 19 miles. It's amazing. I worked it this year. Oh, you did? Nice. I did. I worked the registration with Leslie this year. I could not believe how many people there were. It was insane. It was so great. They had volunteers from, now this was great. They had volunteers from Newfound High School um, helping to put the bags together and everything. And it was just such an amazing, and it was a great event. It was a great yeah. event. Yeah, yeah, it did. Good Lord, they had over 200 people. It was nuts. Wow. Yes. So yes, and I do miles around a lake. It's very impressive. Yeah. And that's why I volunteered and didn't walk. But <laughs> but it was good. And 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 that's the stuff. That's the stuff that you get from having been in too, is that you want to be part of that. So yeah. yeah. And I'm glad, Hillary, listen, I'm so happy that you that I mean that you would have met these guys anyway, but I'm happy that you met some of these groups like the Equine Immersion folks and Hidden Battles through Swim with a Mission. You know, we started Swim with a Mission as an organization to strengthen the veteran service community. And we thought when we started it, the way to do that was just to provide more money, more funding. And as you can tell, you know, five years into our journey, we're realizing that you know, trying to be a catalyst for getting groups to meet each other that have the same mission and the same heart and getting folks to work collaboratively together, right, uh, is almost just as important or maybe even more important, you know, than, than the money, right? And we find ourselves in a unique position to do that. 
because we've spent so much time getting to know all the various veterans service groups who don't know each other. Yeah, the, the events that you did this year with that, the Delta Dental thing, the thing you did at the Courier Museum where they all got to meet each other. And you've actually been able to expand that reach out beyond just the veterans community to the first responders community. And it's been a lot of help for them. I mean, I heard back from people that went to the Courier and not just about what a nice event it was, but about, oh, I met so-and-so and this was so cool and they helped me do this and then they put me in touch with so-and-so. And that's, it was all these branches and it's just, uh, that's what we need. I mean, we, you have to have the people, the VFW is great and we will help all the Vietnam veterans and, and of course my, my Elliot. <laughs> our World War II veterans and our Korean veterans, but when you're starting to talk about the younger ones and then you need your hidden battles and you've got all this who, and they can work together and it's really wonderful. It's just... It is. And, and VIP has been a saving grace for me because I have my traumas in the military and the isolation of COVID um, took its toll on me mentally. And the EIP... I credit Tara and the EIP group with me even being back involved in stuff because I think I would have just stayed home and gained another 30 pounds and hung out for another year until my husband finally just kicked me out into the front yard. Um, so. <laughs> well, talk about, so, so talk about that a little bit because a lot of people don't really understand this amazing connection between horses and humans and, Tell us a little bit about your experience in that. So um, the horse, I'm not an equestrian. I'm not allowed to have a horse because I don't clean the cat box. And I guess there's some thing with stall mucking and clap boxes that my husband doesn't like. But um, my, I think a lot of the, a lot of the things that people go through in the service or as first responders or anything that causes them trauma leads to trust issues. And so when you're dealing with an animal the size of a horse and you can actually bond with this animal and you have to trust it, you have to be able to bond with the animal, um, you know, get up close, get in, in sync with it, breathing, um, whether you're scratching it and it's rubbing against you because it loves you too, or whether you're riding it and you trust that it's not gonna go rolling over on you. It's all about being able to, to open up and to trust something that's a little unpredictable. I mean, you can never make a horse completely predictable, but there's more to it than that. Um, a lot of us will, we tend to internalize and maybe not, when we're scared, we're not gonna say we're scared. And so one of the things that they really work with you on there is, uh, like, for example, I was on a trail ride. I started to get nervous about the horse, and I just figured, well, I'll hunker down. And the woman that I was with, I felt comfortable enough with her to just say, you know what, I want to get off the horse. I'm done, which is a big deal to me because I'm supposed to finish. And it's a big deal to a lot of these people. So I think that a lot of it, I mean, I know for me, it's just the trust with the animal and being able to feel comfortable with something that maybe you're not hundred percent comfortable with and learning just to let go a little bit and maybe ask for help. Um, it's a pretty amazing experience 
And I was fortunate enough to do a weekend up at Laugh Farm, met some great people. And going back this weekend and taking a new veteran with me. That's fantastic. Yeah. It's, uh, I'm still learning about the equine immersion program. I've been so impressed. You know, you mentioned Tara Mahoney, who's great. And there's a few other groups doing a great job. The lads who wanted to just jump in and, you know, and as you know, we've been supporting more and more of these programs. Um, it was to feel like for a veteran that's not really ready to admit that they need help, you know, it's, it's maybe easier to get them to, you know, come to a farm for the weekend and hang out with the horses than to go get, you know, therapy or something like that, right? Well, you get them up there and you get them up there to help. Like, not just to help them, but it's like, um, I'm going to say... <laughs> I'm going to use Michael because I'm drinking this bubbly soda water and it makes me think of the Michael Bublé because of the TV commercial. So I'm going to say, Michael, hey, I need your help like with the uh, with cooking this weekend up at Lad Farm. Can you come up with me and cook? And then when you're there, do all this and do this and do this and not you're not lying to them. And it's like you're telling them take part in the program and help do this. But they feel like they're contributing because maybe, and I know a lot of veterans are very conditioned not to do something where they're just taking. Right. So if they feel right. like they're part of the team and they're contributing to it, they have more of a tendency to go. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, they're they're wonderful. And yeah, you can't you can't beat sitting up at Lad Farm, looking out at the sunset over a. Oh my God! Yes. Square looking at newfound lake one of my favorite places in the world yeah absolutely it's a beautiful mm -hmm. right so that that in of itself is therapy for all of us yes definitely right <laughs> absolutely. life it's just it's just incredible right definitely yeah i mean hillary this has been a great conversation i feel like i know you so much better now than i did before but um is there anything you wanted to cover, you know, or talk about that we didn't touch on? I just would like to, um, I'd like everybody to just start just being kind. I mean, it's great to walk around and thank a veteran for their service. I, I appreciate that when it's done for me. I like thanking policemen for their service. I like thanking the grocery store clerk for working when, you know, it's so hard to find people. I like, um, you know, taking it easy on the waitress, even if your food sucks, because it's not her fault. She didn't cook it. And I think that um, the world would just be a lot better place. And maybe we could, uh, maybe we could support each other as a whole community a little better if we tried doing that all the way around that's all i have i mean it's it's really it's i learned that in the military because we all felt like we were on the same team and i'd love to see more civilians and more americans think we're all on the same team that that was very well said you're really very very well said and, and you don't just say that i i know you live that every day Right. So that's just awesome. Thank you, Hillary. You're welcome. Great. This has been such a pleasure to talk to you. I feel like I was not at all prepared and I went off on tangents all over the place, but. 
No, this is great. I'm looking forward yeah, to going do it again. <laughs> no, we we can't thank you enough, Hillary, and and uh, we we see all the wonderful things that you're you know doing every day to help help your community and help your neighbors, and and I know. Uh, Phil and I are both so proud and happy to have you join us on our podcast. I'm proud to know both of you, and I appreciate having you guys in my Rolodex more than you'll ever know. <laughs> <laughs> well, th thank you. Thank you for joining us on Homeland Heroes. This podcast is a co-production brought to you by the Homeland Heroes Foundation an organization dedicated to the reacclimation support of active duty service members, veterans, and their families in their time of need. And Dairy Cam, who believes a better world starts with a connected community. To learn more, visit homelandheroesfoundation.org and dairycam.org. Follow the Homeland Heroes Salute on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thank you for listening and make sure you subscribe to the Homeland Heroes Salute wherever you listen to podcasts. The views expressed by our guests and others are solely their own. Views expressed in this podcast do not represent any of the uniformed services, the Homeland Heroes Foundation, Dairy Cam, Swim with a Mission, Harbor Care, Veterans First, or any other organization.